This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to something a bit different today. Today, we're going to be talking about the future. Emerge is known for near-term AI impact, but we are interested in the longer-term consequences, the longer-term implications of where AI is ultimately taking us. It's not something we frequently covered on the podcast, but when I'm called to places like the United Nations or Interpol, often it's not just about what is AI doing now. Certainly, that's where we have our credibility. It's about where is it taking us? What's going to be new with the human experience? What are going to be the kinds of dynamics between man and machine? And what do we really want to ultimately work towards here? And these things are important. And because I don't come up with all of these ideas myself, anything that I've thought about in terms of the distant future has certainly been informed by some of the brightest minds thinking about artificial general intelligence, thinking about the governance of AI. I wanted to bring on some of these brightest minds onto the podcast and share with some of you who have an interest in the future. Now, there's hardly anyone with a bigger name in this space than Stuart Russell. Stuart Russell is a computer science professor at the University of California at Berkeley. He's one of the most vocal advocates for artificial intelligence governance. And this series, this first 12-part series of AI Futurescapes every Saturday, is about the governance of AI. We're going to be starting with near-term implications of governance, and we're going to be ending with long-term implications of governance when AI becomes vastly more powerful. Stuart covers a bit of both. I wanted to use his episode to kick things off because I think his voice is important, and I thought the episode was excellent. Uh, Stuart also heads up the Center for Human-Compatible Artificial Intelligence at Berkeley, and he's also author of a book called Human Compatible. We reference it a couple times in this show. I certainly recommend reading it. If you haven't checked out Human Compatible and you're interested in the long-term future, then be sure to check it out. So Stuart really runs a gamut with us today about thinking about how AI governance could be managed today and what are some of the deeper concerns that we should begin to be thinking about now as a global community of business leaders and government leaders. Those of you tuned in, that's you. So again, if you're interested in the far future, be tuned in on Saturdays. Stuart is our first guest in this series. At the end of this episode, I'm going to be asking about your thoughts. I'm going to ask you to tell me what you think about this new series, what else you might want to see covered, and how you like this new sort of ingredient being thrown into our weekly mix. This will make it three episodes every week, so a lot more material for our listeners, but I want to know your thoughts. Without further ado, we're going to fly right in to Stuart Russell here on the AI and Business Podcast in our series of AI Futurescapes for AI Governance. This is episode one of 12. Let's roll right in. So, Stuart, uh, I'll get us started off here to talk about the, the topic of AI governance. I think there's there's some local ideas around AI governance. You know, California has passed some laws around, you know, impersonating people. There's ideas around global governance. The UN and the OECD have sort of efforts. I know you tend to believe that at some point we will need a, a degree of global governance around AI. Kind of summarize your position there, if you could start off with that. Yeah, this is, a, this is a question with a potentially very long answer. Uh, I'll try to keep it pretty short. So let, let me begin with that particular example you brought up, that California has a law against impersonation of human beings. So yes. this is something which actually is relatively enforceable, pretty clear what you mean. And I think you'd be very hard put to find any human being on earth who thinks it's a really good idea for AI systems to impersonate human beings, right? So put another way, right, that we have a right to know, are we interacting with a machine or a human? Because humans, if I'm interacting with a human, I owe them a number of obligations of politeness, of sincerity, 
and so on. If it's a machine, I don't. And so I would like to know, and it's not, I'm not really imposing a huge cost on the purveyor of AI that it identify itself. And Google has already changed its policy on the use of Google Voice, that it ought to identify itself as a machine first. And so that's pretty interesting. Uh, and the California law is a step in the right direction, although it's rather circumscribed. But I would say this is something that we could easily imagine becoming a global standard, basically a human right that everyone is entitled to uh, and should be instantiated in law uh, in every country in the world. If it's not instantiated in every country, of course, then you have the problem of cross-border impersonation. And, uh, and this is already a big issue with, with cybercrime, that there are some, uh, there are nations that sign up to the Budapest Convention saying that we will allow cross-border forensics and we'll cooperate in prosecuting cybercrime. And there are some nations, well, Russia, not. for example, yeah. that doesn't want to participate in well, that. For, for obvious they, reasons, yeah. Uh, they, they generate tons of money from it. So I think we need to have a, a global agreement on this, and I think it's quite feasible. And it's quite different from a lot of these very general airy-fairy, well, you know, we should make sure that we pay attention to ethical considerations when we design AI systems. Well, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's not actionable. I can't put you in jail if you didn't quite pay enough attention to ethical considerations. So the kind of governance that is needed, it varies enormously from technology to technology. Think about nuclear power, whether it's weapons or energy. It's clear to everybody, every country in the world understands that it will be a bad idea, well, almost every country, it will be a bad idea for nuclear weapons and technology to fall into the hands of criminals or other uh, sort of non-state, non-regulated yeah. entities. And so we have a pretty rigorous, globally, fairly uniform set of agreements in the form of treaties and national legislations about how nuclear materials are to be stored, transported, security around uh, nuclear plants. And of course, treaties, you know, controlling or banning uh, nuclear weapons. Whereas you think about electricity, right? It's a totally different thing. We have international agreements, not global, but there are, there are multi-nation standards on voltages, on plug design, on ground fault interruption, various sort of safety issues. So it's a totally different thing. You, you just start from looking at the nature of the technology and you figure out, you know, and a lot of it came from private industry, actually, from underwriters labs, which started out as a way of creating greater confidence and greater safety in this new technology of electricity so that it could become more widespread. So with AI, most of the governance at the moment is around these vertical scenarios like you know self-driving cars is very different from giving loans to people right and yep. this is because it's not one ai technology it's really multiple ai technologies with different use cases and very different regulatory environments that make sense for those but when we have general purpose ai it's going to be a different thing the general purpose ai will be doing all of those things it'll be driving the cars it'll be making the loans It'll be building the dams. It'll be managing the nuclear power stations. It'll be, you know, geoengineering the climate. You name it, it'll be doing it. And um, that will mean that we need to have ways of making sure that it's safe, it's beneficial, and it remains under human control forever. And a few, a few things to touch on here. So there's a lot of threads to pull on from what you've mentioned. 
remaining under human control forever is uh, awfully ambitious, but I'm sure we'll get into that. So some folks will make the argument around, well, you know, we have these nuclear standards and, you know, you can track plutonium in a truck somewhere, but it's really hard to track AI. And some people would say, well, you know, what have these nuclear treaties really done anyway? You know, nukes have still spread. I think that's a bit of a pessimistic take, but I'm not a scholar on the space. I know you happen to be involved in that domain um, in terms of uh, kind of the nuclear world. Are there strong precedents of efficacy that would transfer to something that doesn't get shipped in a truck? And if so, which bits of that do you think will make the leap to being able to be internationally sort of trackable on the, on the side of AI? Well, there, there are certainly many examples of, of agreements on, on standards and procedures and laws. You know, the internet is a good example where, uh, you know, that, that was very distributed process of development, but there is, you know, uh, internet executive task force, which develops the protocols which allow everyone to interconnect and interact. And without that, we wouldn't have the World Wide Web and, and email and all the other uh, things that we take for granted. Many of the, the nuclear treaties have been relatively successful. If you look at the test ban treaty, so that, that was proposed in 1958 as a way of heading off the nuclear arms race between the USA and Soviet Union. It was eventually agreed on and open for signature in 96. So it took almost 40 years to get from Eisenhower's suggestion that we had to have this treaty to actually having a treaty. And the USA still has not ratified the treaty. So at the moment, that treaty has been in sort of suspended animation now since 96, so, so more than 20 years. So it's been observed, even though it hasn't been ratified. And part of that, you know, it, it, when, when you look at that problem, like how do you prevent nuclear testing? Well, you need a fairly invasive monitoring system. We have a global monitoring system that has seismic stations all over the world, pretty much uniformly distributed on the globe, and sending data from those stations back to the United Nations in Vienna. And that was uh, you know, a massive international cooperative process. Uh, you know, more than a billion dollars was spent on that monitoring system in order to create confidence that you could detect violations of the treaty. And without that, nations wouldn't agree to participate in the treaty in the first place. So for AI, I think it's somewhere between nuclear weapons and electricity. Like electricity, it's sort of everywhere and distributed, and you're not going to be able to prevent its proliferation. You're not going to be able to sort of hoard the technology in, in silos and, and, and own it. But it's in everyone's interest that the AI systems remain controlled and safe. And when we have the design templates, you know, so it's sort of like, think this is like electricity before we understand how to design plugs properly and so on, right? You couldn't say to everyone, well, you all have to use provably safe plugs, you know, even though we don't know what they look like. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, so, so people made mistakes and people got electrocuted and gradually, you know, in fact, the ground fault interrupter was developed by one of my colleagues here at Berkeley. And, you know, so that, that was a big contribution to electrical safety. So when we have the templates for designing AI systems that are safe and controllable, I think it's quite reasonable that we would say that these have to be used, that you don't get to sell AI software that doesn't conform to these templates and you don't get to connect a piece of software to the internet. So we have to have sort of gatekeeping mechanisms as well as you know, professional 
ethical standards, codes of conduct, inspection regimes. You know, there'll be third-party companies that set up to check that your AI software doesn't have the, those kinds of loopholes. I'm going to get to this international when we get to general AI point that you're now touching on around this broader set of standards that would be necessary. But I thought you brought up an interesting point about the California instance where you had mentioned, you know, that this is sort of something that makes sense. Most of us would agree, like, I would like to know if it's a machine or a person. And I think I should know when that's the case. So we had Constantinos from the IEEE, who's very involved in their efforts around developing standards around ethical AI ethically aligned design. They have a number of initiatives, I think, that are worth tuning into. And, you know, he talks about finding pockets where almost everyone could say, you know what, that does make sense. You know, using the data of children browsing on the internet, for example, to, to edit yeah. recommendation systems and marketing. Like, it, it just feels like that makes sense. And so do you believe that early progress will essentially be a number of different precedents whereby to some degree internationally, we could come to a consensus that, yeah, okay, we can't be doing that across countries or anything. I mean, this is just something we should we should have as kind of a, a rule, a standard, et cetera. Do you think it's going to begin with those, with a collection of those globally? I do, actually, yeah. I, okay. I think that a wait, waiting until we have, you know, the, the single global solution to all IT problems, I think, is, is hopeless. And I think a lot of these statements of principles, I mean, they're, they're nice for reminding people that they have moral obligations they don't easily translate into legislation. They're, they're mostly not enforceable. So these examples like impersonation, I think really what they do is they put a sort of a, you know, a flag in the ground and they say, you know, humans have rights vis-a-vis -vis machines. And I think that's a really important step. So the sooner uh, we can do that. So, you know, GDPR has some of these rights. So the human has a right, at least, notionally to an explanation when an algorithm is making a decision about that humans that is legally significant, whether it's putting them in prison or refusing them a loan or refusing them admission to a university, that there's a right to explanation, to appeal, and ultimately that a, a human has to be responsible for the decision. I think this is extremely important because you know, there's, there's two ways to think about technology at, at the very abstract level. And I like to think of this in sort of a, sort of a pyramid, right? So when we were hunter-gatherers, right, we didn't have any technology, right? So you're sort of you're like you're standing on the ground and, and your footprint as a human is as big as your feet, right? And you sort of got your hands, your feet, your teeth, and that's it, right? So what technology can do for a person is to make them more capable, right? So to enlarge their footprint. So you can think of technology as a kind of a pyramid and you get to stand on top of this pyramid and now you've got this bigger footprint, right? And that means that we, you know, economically, we can be much more productive. We can have more control over bad things that happen to us like tornadoes and whatever. And that's fine as long as you're on top of the pyramid. But what if, you know, if you remember, you know, the Indiana Jones movies, right? You're always inside the pyramid and the, the sand is coming down and you're yeah, buried. Yeah, okay, in this okay, pyramid, okay, yeah. Right? We don't want humans to be in that position, right? Where they're buried under the pyramid rather than standing on top of the pyramid. And this is your and, analogy of finding, finding enough of these instances so that we can ensure that, that no one is just drenched by the impacts of these technologies, but that we find... The places where, you know, these new kinds of human rights and permutations of things where we can ensure that, that we're, I guess, to your analogy, on top. 
Yeah, we're on top that we're not subservient to technology and that we don't become because the you know the other problem of becoming just a a sort of a cog in uh, an overall technological machine is that then we're replaceable. Yeah. It's very important I think for sort of maintaining a level of human autonomy. And it, this was brought home to me. I don't know if if you've seen the movie Elysium. I have not. I have not. Uh, so anyway, so so Matt, it's a, it's a future, a very dystopian future where you know the Earth is this big, big sort of ecological disaster mess. Everyone is impoverished. Every you know the cities are all in rubble, and the rich have gone off planet. They they live in these beautiful orbiting habitats, uh, and they leave Earth to be managed by robots. You know, and so all all the humans are on Earth. So Matt Damon is one of these humans on on the Earth, and he's sort of he you know he's not the kind to to just knuckle under and do what he's told. So he's constantly getting in trouble, and uh, you know what, at one point he gets into an argument with a robot policeman, you know who just sort of breaks his arm, and uh, you know he's not even allowed to complain about that. And then he has to go see his parole officer, you know. So his parole officer is this little robot plastic head which is telling him off and saying, you know, you're not being sufficiently deferential. You know, I think I think I detect some sarcasm in your response and uh, and so on and so forth. Right. And it just it just brings home the way in which humans can become subservient to technology, that our our status as individuals becomes in some sense lower than that of some technology which has control over us. Yeah. And it's a metaphor, but it's I think it's a very powerful metaphor for what we should be on the lookout for, and uh, and we can make decisions that over the long run will significantly affect how things end up. You mentioned in the in the book, your your publisher folks were kind enough to zing one along here, uh, an, an analogy from a very old novel, I think from 1907 or something like that, about humans essentially losing their role and, and becoming irrelevant in a similar kind of, I don't know if I want to say subservience, but a, a loss of autonomy. And so for you, it sounds as though finding these instances that affirm that autonomy that people can agree to would potentially be a step one. Do you believe that these efforts around principles, you know, the OECD has their principles, uh, you know, the DOD purportedly has a set of principles. There's a lot of exercises. You described your inbox pretty well in the book as well as the grand consortium of everything ethics related to AI, et cetera, et cetera, right? I, I remember getting into this world in 2012, you know, you had Ben Gertzel's blog, you had Bostrom's blog, you had the IWT, and you had Miri was called something else. Uh, and, and that was basically it. Now, of course, it's exploded and everybody and their mother has an academic institute, et cetera, et cetera. Do you believe that some of this work around principles, which does feel toothless in terms of its impact, will at least set the groundwork for kind of if those principles are fleshed out and people think through them ardently and maybe think through use cases, that eventually those efforts can shuffle down to these individual instances where we could say, oh, well, does this represent that principle? You know, is this an instance where we could put a real flag in that principle? Are they useful for that kind of topology of where these instances might be, in your opinion? Yes, I think I think that's a that's a reasonable, uh, an optimistic viewpoint. I think uh, <laughs> some some would say that there's just a lot of ethics washing going on, particularly for sure, in some, for of, the, sure. In yeah. some of the corporations yeah. who are who are espousing yeah. principles. And you can look at the EU, you know, the GDPR as, you know, you could, if you were cynical, you would say, well, these are just, you know, very high level principles. And, and you know, the chance that anyone is ever going to get prosecuted for using an algorithm to decide whether you get a mortgage is that's pretty, 
lame and you know and when i complain about the decision nothing happens there isn't even a human being i can talk to uh yeah. you know when when, uh, when something's wrong with my credit card uh you know you send email and, and you get some stupid reply from an algorithm that doesn't even understand what you said so i think there is a there is certainly a gap between the lofty aspirations and the the facts on the ground but but these things do have a tendency to um turn into concrete policy you know when when litigation occurs, uh, you know, and, and courts have to decide, you know, what well, what does this this article of DDPR really mean, you know, and was it correctly instantiated in national law, and does it apply in this case? And I think if we if we see cases where the wrong thing happens, right, because the principles were too vague or they weren't properly instantiated in law, um, you know, maybe we'll we'll fix those. But it, it's taking time, as far as I know. There have been very few cases brought under GDPR so far. I've also heard that that might be a useful precedent. I think time will tell, to your point right there. Before getting into the global side, which I'll pivot back into, but around these individual instances that, quote unquote, we could all agree to, you know, I, I like the example of we should know if this is a human or a machine, maybe you know, the use of children's data for marketing. You talked about humans being on top of the pyramid as opposed to the, the Indiana Jones analogy is great. I think that gives some emotion to the, to the analogy there. Even in that regard, it would seem as though there would be reasons for something other than international agreement around even things that simple. Your analogy of humans being on top of the pyramid, I think some people would argue, and I am not, by the way, is a very Western notion. And that to some degree, sort of falling in line to the powers that be is kind of the name of the game. And if those powers are technology enabled, you know, I don't think that the CCP's vision is sort of the same degree of individual empowerment to which you espouse. Nor do I know for sure if every country that's going to play ball with the United States in online media, in business, etc., would want to bar themselves from certain capabilities and abilities. Is there a way to even come up with those individual instantiations with nations that have very different kind of core moral beliefs and kind of uh, leading parties that, that have... They want to behoove their own interests, I suspect. So what are your thoughts there about even coming up with a consensus on these small things? Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good question. I I suspect actually that, you know, China and the US and, and Europe are not as far apart as the media would have you believe. But I would say that I think Chinese policy may be mistaken in its belief that if you believe this whole, you know, social credit control system, which you know, I think is so far, you know, has only been partially implemented. Yeah. Uh, oh, there, there's in, there's another level. It has yet to reach its final form. That's for right. sure. Yeah, but but if if you believe what the, what the plans are, which is to basically turn the entire sort of information ecosystem into a, a giant experiment in reinforcement learning, where there's essentially a reward function that's set up for humans that scores them according to the various things they do, and they will, they will learn how to get more points in that system. My sense is that that, to give them the benefit of the doubt, they would like it to promote harmony, social order, kind of good behavior. And, and you know, the church would also like to do those things. Uh, and uh, the church had to go. The church, we done did some stuff to the church in the West. If you, you know, you're familiar with history there. We, we, we done did some stuff to the church so that it can't do that kind of stuff, as you're well aware. Uh, so we don't have the same degree of an issue there, I think, in, in, in the Western world of, of the, the top down. But yeah, maybe you're right. If they could, they might. I, I think they are still doing it uh, to the extent that they can. So the, I think the problem is that 
you can't, and this comes back to the sort of thesis of the book uh, of human compatible, which is it, you cannot specify those reward functions correctly, right? So what you're going to get is, you know, you get exactly what we see with reinforcement learning systems. They find a way of gaming the system and behaving in ways you didn't want, but, mm. but that maximize the number of points that they get. And I think particularly you would like to encourage people to be generous to each other, to have concern for the well-being of others, to have concern for the well-being of their family and their parents uh, and so on. But what you're going to get is the appearance of concern, but actually just the desire to get points. You will actually destroy the very thing you're trying to encourage. And, uh, you know, and I think you could see the same thing in the medieval church, right? They wanted, <laughs> they wanted to encourage people to behave well, but the, you know, in fact, the system corrupted things in both directions, right? Yeah, you, could, yeah. you could be bad as long as you paid money to the church yep, for yep, forgiveness. Yep, yep. And then the church became basically an extortion racket. Yep. Uh, so it sort of really destroyed things in both directions. And maybe the same thing will happen in China too. That, that system will, will fail in both directions. Maybe they too will have their Luther. And I'm sure many of the, uh, the Chinese people uh, would long for it. I'm not sure how much of the CCP at the higher levels would long for it, though. That, that is, uh, as, I'm, as I'm sure the church at the time would not want have, uh, wanted to have put an end to uh, their balls and their gilded cups, et cetera, et cetera, whatever they were doing back in the day. <laughs> so to, to lean into the global side of things, you know, when it comes to the degree of urgency here, to your point, I think when we get to general intelligence, I am of the belief for sure that we need some degree of human solidarity. I think that the differences of political beliefs are relatively paltry compared to all of our survival. I think that you know, anybody you meet around the world, if you meet face to face, if you're both people, I think most people have a great ability to get along. And I think that Zoom meetings like this, which which I do around the world, I know you travel around the world and speak, mm -hmm. you know, I think prove. But again, there are these forces that would potentially create tension because, you know, you had mentioned, okay, well, we'll audit your AI product so that if people are browsing on this uh, Chinese e-commerce site and they're in Germany, they're not being abused. And then the same vice versa, that Chinese users are on some German website that, you know, they're not, their data isn't being used in some way that's breaking the law. Uh, it seems as though the bigger concerns are around broader economic, military, technological power. And then it won't be sort of friendly company, consumer facing X, but more sort of, you know, you talk about a Dr. Evil in his basement or something in the book, which is a funny, playful way of saying it. But in all seriousness, military complexes around the world, to, despite those game theory tensions of sort of winner takes all that might occur, should someone be able to birth the deity here? Hmm. What does near term convening look like? You begin to touch on this towards the, the latter portion of the the book itself. But, you know, if you were to see it go well, you know, in your dreams, when you say, man, you know, at some point when this, when we start approaching general AI, I really hope that it can be done this way. What does that look like to you? So my feeling is that I completely agree that there's, there's no, you know, I, I don't have sort of starry eyed uh, <laughs> optimism that, uh, you know, we're all going to sort of sit down. You're not known for starry eyed optimism, Stuart. That's not your repute. Big. Yeah. Right. So, you know, have a big <laughs> vegan barbecue uh, with all the world leaders and, yeah, yeah. and sing. Yeah, right. it, you know, the real politic is out there and it's probably worse now than it was yeah. uh, 10 years ago. You know, but finding areas that we can agree on that are clearly of mutual benefit, such as, well, let's, make, let's pick on something successful like the ozone layer, right? 
to a large extent, you know, the scientists said, okay, you keep pumping out CFCs, you're going to destroy the ozone layer, and then pretty much you know, everyone on Earth is going to suffer. You will be wearing number 120 sunscreen. Every day, uh, yeah. Every day, you yeah. know, and, and uh, you know, those, those big old lady glasses and, and floppy hats and just, it's going to make life untenable. And action was taken fairly quickly. And, uh, you know, you, you could say until recently that the global climate process, despite the best efforts of the fossil fuel industry, was creating cooperation among nations that had competing interests in other spheres, but they understood that uh, there's no point competing over climate. So I wish it was the case that all tragedies of the commons could be solved this way, right? So the, the, all of these systems are, all these basically come down to tragedy of the commons, that there's a local incentive to defect from cooperative behavior to gain more value. So my sense is actually that assuming that we solve the control problem and we, we have general purpose AI as an available technology to everybody, that that kind of eliminates this uh, incentive to, to defect from, from cooperative behavior. Because then, right, what, what's to be gained, right? It's, it's, it would be kind of like saying, hey, 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 I've got more copies of the digital newspaper than you do. I, I mean, that's kind of a silly thing to be arguing about and fighting about uh, and setting, setting yourself up in competition over because you can always just make more. And I say, well, fine, you know, we already have more copies of the newspaper than we need and we don't care how many you have. It's fine. So, uh, and general purpose AI can be a general wealth provider, right? Not just newspapers, but everything. And so it eliminates the need to be in competition with each other, just like, you know, the capability of digital copying eliminates the need to, to compete over who has the newspaper. So I think if people understand this, then they will see that, this current arms race, uh, you know, where Putin says whoever leads yeah. in AI will rule the world. I mean, that that is a possible outcome. That one side could develop it first and then use that capability to very rapidly outcompete and uh, you know, and in a virtual sense, outfight. They wouldn't need to actually fight a war. They would just demonstrate that they have overwhelming military capability resulting from this technology. That's a possible future, but there's nothing to be gained by that because you don't lose by sharing the technology. There's a couple of caveats. So again, you know, don't, not, not too starry-eyed. The caveats have to do with, you know, well, where would the finite resource bounds be hit, right? So yes, you've got sort of general purpose wealth creating technology that, you know, when, when you need a hospital for your, for your village, you, you know, you just call up just like now, if, if, I, if I need to be in Australia, I get my phone out and I go tap, 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 and I'm in Australia the next day for practically no money. You need a hospital for your village, you go tap, 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 you know, a bunch of robots and, and robot trucks and robot workers show up and drones fly in with materials and, and, you know, a week later you have a hospital in your village. You know, so the costs are eliminated from, from goods and services uh, at all levels. The conflict still remains over things that you can't make more of, which I think is mainly land. So if I was in the business of managing international relations, I would say, let's think about how we're going to manage the finite land resource of the earth in a future where everyone has 
access to this wealth creating technology, right? If uh, you know, I calculated if, if you look at the so take Greenwich, Connecticut, which is completely urbanized in the sense that every piece of land basically has a house and a garden on it. Rather, rather expensive house and garden, I'll add. Expensive houses and expensive gardens. But now if, in a future where everyone is effectively, you know, as wealthy as the residents of Greenwich, Connecticut, well, they all want a nice house and a nice garden. If you made everyone in China a nice house and a nice garden, you would cover the entire surface of the earth. Right. That's there, tough. That's there, really tough. There'd be, yeah. There'd be no room for anyone else. So really, that's to me the place where um, we've got to figure out how to deal with the inevitable conflicts that are going to arise over land. Hmm. But, but you do believe, I guess I'll, I'm going to try to nutshell part of what you've said here before I get into our very quick and final question. It sounds as though while there are some issues where there may still be contention, and I do believe that some people's end goal, uh, Stuart, um, you know, I read enough biography of people I both like and don't like to think that some people actually are not looking for happiness. But uh, as Lincoln mentioned in his Lyceum address, burn for distinction and will do so at whatever cost. Uh, and I fear mm -hmm. that for those folks, infinite leisure to which you articulate is uh, not sufficient. But that aside, what you mention is that to some degree, if the promise of solidarity of agreed to standards and control models for AI would ensure some degree of that great shared wealth for the species, you believe that maybe that will be a countervailing tension that will be a bit of an encourager to collaboration to kind of getting along to some degree, that that shared promise, should we be able to have it, to, to you will will kind of hold tension on the side of, of solidarity? I think so, yeah. I mean, a, a, an analogy might be, you know, if you, if you go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, right, where, you know, oil was a precious resource and without access to oil, you couldn't really have economic development, you know, and we, there were lots of wars were fought over oil. You know, we had the Arab oil embargo, which, you know, would cause economic havoc, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know, and so, so control of the Middle East has been, you know, in the post-war period, and even, even a little bit in the pre-war period, but in the post-World War II period, control over oil resources was probably the major geopolitical goal, leaving aside the nuclear arms race, but there are, in the other spheres, it was that. But suppose that suppose that we had discovered, you know, Europa, a quantity of, of oil that that made the Middle East look like a drop in the bucket, right? That uh, if, if we could simply get to Europa, there would be more oil, or, you know, everyone would have their own Middle East. Then would it, right, would it make sense to, for one country to say, well, we're going to get there first, we're going to hog all of that oil, right, which is a million times more than we could ever consume in our country and make sure that no one else ever gets any of it. I don't see that it's in the in the interest of that nation to do that. Right? Because they, yeah. they they're not using 99.9999% of it. And by trying to hog it, they set themselves up for conflict with everybody else. Right. So I think that the discovery of that resource would tend to reduce the conflict over oil on Earth as it is, and, and instead you would imagine that there will be cooperative cooperative effort to go get the oil from Europa instead. So if you think of AI as being a resource like that, that lies there in the future, uh, when it's obtainable, it presumably then eliminates the need to compete over sources of wealth. 
then it ought to reduce the level of conflict over sources of wealth in the present. So that you know that's a very abstract and, and yeah, really yeah. view, but it it feels it feels right to me. The AI world is incredibly cooperative. It, it is um, at present, yes, that's good. Yeah, you know, much more so than biology, for example. Biology people hoard their data; they send spies to each other's labs. They, you know, they're very very competitive. You know, partly because of the Nobel Prize. I think that Nobel Prize. Oh, goodness gracious! Goodness gracious! Well, again, Stuart, uh, do people seek happiness? Do they seek aggregate well-being, or do they burn for distinction? My good man, and and and. Yeah. That's an issue, and we will, uh, you know, people worry. Well, what are we going to do in the future? We'll find ways of competing with each other. Everyone wants to be in the top one percent. There'll always be a top one percent, no matter how many of us there are and how well off we are. That's the human condition. The tribe of the eagle, Lincoln calls them in the in the essay. Um, Regardless, I, I I like the Europa example. I think that. I consider it tantamount optimism, but also could be a, a, a force in the direction of cooperation. I so terribly want to go into this idea of human bliss and sort of a shared physical world as opposed to all the different upload and kind of transhuman possible scenarios, you know, hundreds of years out, but we don't have the time for it. We're going to have to just touch on a final question. Stuart, you are well-read in the tech world, not just the AI ethics space. You're out in Berkeley, uh, in the Bay Area kind of like Yashua Bengio, who's also been on the, the show, you know, people who work at the big tech firms are aware of you. Maybe, you know, certainly the Facebooks and, and the IBMs, but I would imagine even the Citibanks and the HSBCs and some of the, the other kinds of listeners that we have in traditional enterprises. When you think about this, as we muddle towards governance, we, we muddle through principles, we find individual instances, we move towards uh, hopefully a shared human solidarity. Where's the mm-hmm. role for the private sector? You know, they're told, oh, be ethical with your AI, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, maybe they can't steer the ship here. But when you think about something practical in terms of, you know, doing good, playing a part, you know, from, from your perspective, where does the private sector belong? I think one, one of the things the private sector can do is, I mean, besides obviously just, you know, solving technological problems, which they seem to do a great job of, is creating uh, and promulgating standards. You know, take something as simple as as the App Store. In order for that to work, right, you have to trust that when you get something from the App Store, it's not going to seize up your iPhone or steal data from the other apps. And so Apple implements a whole bunch of checks. So that becomes a de facto safety standard. And it's entirely coming from the private sector. The government didn't tell them to do that. It just wouldn't work if they didn't do that. And I think there are there are opportunities. You know, there are there are systems out there that are sort of in the process of failing in nasty ways. And what you know, one of them is uh, the media, right? Yeah, it, yeah. We're getting to a level of of misinformation that I think one one observer called it the infopocalypse, where the whole system is just sort of shaking itself to pieces uh, and becoming dysfunctional because. People haven't figured out, you know, what is the standard, what is the gatekeeping, what is the mechanism, whether it's flagging or filtering or whatever it might be, you know. And I think there are systemic solutions, but they take they take time to emerge. And you have to look at other areas where you see this kind of problem. So, for example, in insurance, you see this problem because you know you would like to give people a reduced premium if they implement you know, safety yep. consideration A, B, and C, but of course they're going to lie about it, 
they're going to say, yes, of course I have a, an extinguisher in my kitchen. And of course, of course, I never drive above the speed limit. And of course, I don't smoke in bed. Uh, <laughs> With my know, pit bull. Yeah, whatever. Right, yeah. Please give me, so I, I deserve the lowest rate. So everyone's going to lie about it. So the insurance industry develops third party verifiers. So there's a whole secondary industry that built up to verify the claims so that the insurance company can give uh, efficient um, premiums. And, uh, you know, there might, maybe there were other solutions. The real estate industry has notaries to drive out false information from, from that industry, you know, and land registries that are operated by government and other kinds of mechanisms. So we have to figure out the mechanisms that will protect the whole information ecosystem. Uh, and this is a place where right now private industry has to has to step up because they're going to lose out otherwise. So you think that there's an alignment of incentives where to, to solve these problems from the maybe user's perspective, the standards perspective, to find these new normals. And you brought some great, you know, the app store, the insurance industry. These are maybe business analogies to branch from that some of those new normals you think may be able to further the right elements of governance, maybe solidify standards to some degree in terms of how it actually works in the world? Is this where you're getting at? Yeah. So, you know, misinformation and, and privacy failures are, I think, two of the big areas. Cybercrime is another one, right? So those are three, but there are probably a few more. But those are three major, basically, systemic failures right now. The solutions, I mean, maybe it has to be a cooperation between government and private industry, but it's private industry that is losing out, and also the individuals yeah. who are losing out, and uh, people are starting to unplug as a result. You know, and I don't think anyone wants that. No, no, I don't think so. Certainly not the business folks. So hopefully there is an alignment of incentives there. Stuart, I know that that's all we have for time, and I know you have... Uh, books to write, uh, research to do, and cigarettes to smoke in bed. Uh, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, leave you, I'll leave you to do that, and I will not tell your insurance company. Uh, for folks who haven't already gotten a copy, the book is Human Compatible. Uh, Stuart's Publishing folks were nice enough to send one along. I was coaxed into reading it and knew that I need to have Stuart on this episode. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us here. Thanks, Dan. Really nice talking to you. First episode down. That's episode one of 12 of this series called AI Futurescapes. And this first Futurescapes series is going to be focused on AI governance. I hope you enjoyed some of Stuart's thoughts. I was grateful to be able to have him on the program and have him join the conversation, really kick off this conversation. Our future interviews are going to start with near-term AI governance concerns, and we're going to work all the way up to long-term concerns. We're going to be speaking in the near term with experts from the OECD, experts from the IEEE and other organizations. And then as we stretch out to the longer term, we'll have uh, thought leaders like Ben Gertzel and other folks who are going to be joining us later on to talk about where AI is ultimately taking us. It should be a fun journey, and I absolutely love your thoughts. Some folks, I think, are really going to like the future aspect of things, kind of drawing the near-term realities of where AI is and to where it's taking us. I think we certainly have audience members who are fascinated by that. We have others who might want to see other topics covered. What are your thoughts on this series? Is there anything you'd like to change about the format? Is there anything that maybe you'd like to hear more about if we're talking more about the future? Or are you kind of annoyed by the future being thrown into the near-term business implications and you just want to hear about insurance and pharma and some of the near-term, uh, which is the bulk of our focus? In either case, please submit your survey response to emerj.com slash 
P-O-D-3. That's pod, and then the number three. That's going to forward you to a short response form. It's literally one field. So you're just going to say, hey, here's my feedback, Dan. And we're going to read these every single Monday with my team. As this new series rolls out, we're going to be taking that feedback every single week and thinking about and molding our future episodes, not just the future scape, but other episodes as well. So go to emerj.com slash pod three and let me know your feedback on this series i really think the future episodes are going to be a lot of fun our next episode is with uh, is again uh, focusing on the governance of ai is more focused on the near term and it's with Karine Perset of the oecd she works on and is part of the team of the oecd policy observatory and she's going to bring her perspective to bear about how to get started with ai governance at an international level oecd is has a really an unprecedented position of doing this with their initial oecd ai principles and she really sheds light on how that might have ramifications moving forward into the future as AI becomes more powerful. So that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed. Next Tuesday, we're going to be hopping back into AI use cases. Thursday, we're going to be talking about making the business case. But now we've got this new Saturday series, and I'm happy to have you with us on the ride. So I look forward to catching you on Tuesday and catching you here next Saturday if you want to hear more about AI futurescapes.